Good morning, everyone. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of Has Christianity, uh, Has American Christianity Failed? Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We have been taking our time through this chapter because we're really laying the foundation here. And this chapter is the second, How Bad a Boy Are You? That's the title. And we left off right at page 67, so that's where we'll be picking up here in just a minute. And to kind of bring us back into context, to just oversimplify quite a lot, we have um, looked at that Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Okay. If we're dead, then what is the implication of that for, quote-unquote, free will? And a very helpful distinction is was made last week, and that is we have free will in those things that are below us. What are some examples of things below us, things within our control? Well, yeah, marriage, who, who you want to marry. Even, even, and I don't mean to get confusing here, but even technically, like, which religion you'd want to be part of? Even if you were an unbeliever, I like this congregation, it makes me feel better than this other. You could even make that kind of choice. You could choose what to wear, you could choose where to go to school, you could choose what to eat, you could choose, um, within a reasonable degree, what... Uh, you know, what, what career you'd have or what job you'd work. Okay, all of these things are put below us. But what things are not? Spiritual things. Being free from sin, for example. That, that shows the limitation of our free will. Can't do it. Um, what, about, what about, for example, um, turning to God and making a decision for Him? Can't do it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so, we're going to be reflecting on these things. Now, as we went on our way, we, Pastor Wolfmuller reminded us of the, the law and its function in revealing to us this thing that we don't believe about ourselves. Go out onto the street and talk with somebody who's not a believer in Christ. Ask them if they're a good person or not. About 99% will say yes in one way, shape, or form. Right? Everybody thinks they're a good person. Are they a good person? The scriptures say no. Jesus says no. Out of the heart of man come all wicked things. The heart is wicked, desperately wicked, and deceitful above all things, the scriptures say. Um, there is none who does good. No, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God, etc., etc. So what is, what is God's, what is Christ's, what is the Bible's pronouncement on fallen human beings? There's, there's no good. But every single person thinks they're Good, isn't that ironic? So the law has to come and do its work. That's the first work of God, is to show us what good really is, and then to show us how we failed to meet that. And the law has these three uses. Do you remember what they are? A curb, a mirror, and a guide. Excellent. All right, so the curb, of course, is just that use of the law that runs civil order, and um, we obey it out of self-interest. That's really the problem, you know. It's just, well, the only re reason I do that is because I don't want the punishment. So it's all self-interest-based. It's carrot-and-stick type stuff, okay? But no inner change, no inner freedom. The mirror, then, is that which shows us our sins. This is God's definition of what's good. This is God's definition of his character and what's right and how he would have humans being human beings live and behave and more than that, just their ontology. He would have them be this way. And in that mirror of the law, we see how, fall we, how, how short we fall and, and how desperately we need a Savior. That's the main theological purpose of the law. And then last but not least, the law as guide, so that once we are forgiven by Christ, once we are baptized and redeemed, the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we now look to the law and say, what is this good and gracious will of the Father who so loved me that he gave his Son? This God who is love, who has loved me, therefore I love him. What, how, how may I live in a, in a God-pleasing way? And that's, the, that's where we turn to the law as a guide. 
Okay, so the law's chief purpose then is to show us how we are bound in our sins, how even though we think we're good, we're not, as a fallen human race, of course. And that's really the ground we've covered on page 66. You remember this business about our will is free regarding things of this life, our will is bound regarding the things of God. Our will is free regarding those things below us, our will is not free in regard to those things above us. And of course, we commented, as we have a couple of other times, how American Christianity flips this. American Christianity says, you're free to make a decision for Jesus, but then, um, which is like this huge thing that no one can do. But then when it comes to like picking who you're supposed to marry or where you're supposed to go to school or what job you're supposed to have or where you're supposed to live, there's like this paralysis. Oh, I've got to seek God's will. So there's a denial in the, of the free will and the things God actually gives us free will in. And a belief that we have free will where God has expressly said that we don't. So the whole thing's upside down in American Christianity. And that's why we spent so much time on the law and on this biblical testimony, because it is contrary to our fallen human experience. All right, we left off on 67, talking about this idea of inviting Jesus into our heart, as if that's some place where that's worthy and fit for him. Um, of course, our hearts are so tainted with sin, it's not. He condescends to enter our hearts. The picture of this is condescending to dwell in the manger, surrounded by animals and straw and dung. He condescends to dwell in our hearts. It's not like our hearts are some elevated place worthy for him. Um, but then in dwelling our hearts, he transforms our hearts. So where does all this come from in Scripture? Let's really work to lay some, uh, to see the foundation that God has laid for us in Holy Scripture. So page 67, under that subheading, what can we do? Paul speaks of our conversion as a move from death to life. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, this is a quotation of Ephesians 2, 1. So, this idea of being dead in trespasses and sins, who makes us alive? God. It's God who makes us alive. So, if we're dead in trespasses and sins, and to be alive, if this is the language of conversion, what else would it be? Then who's responsible for conversion? God. I mean, that's precisely Paul's point in Ephesians 2, is that God is the one who is responsible for conversion. So, to him be thanks and praise. To him be the glory. Is there any boasting in me? No, there can't be. It's God who converted me. If I'm in heaven, that's all praise and glory be to God. All right, and then Wolfmuller tells us that we can also see verse 5, and then Colossians 2.13 as well. He continues, we are dead in trespasses and sins, not sick, not crippled, dead. We are, says Paul, dead in our sins, completely unable to choose or decide anything regarding Jesus. Again, Paul writes, the natural person, so what is the natural person? This is a fallen human being, a post-fall human being, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14. So what takes this natural person who won't accept the things of God, who views the things of God as folly, as foolishness, and he can't understand them. What grants him this understanding? What grants him this change of mindset, this change of will? God, the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit working precisely through the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of, of Christ. And so, that Word of Christ creates hearing. That hearing creates faith in the heart. It's God's creative activity. Wolfmuller continues, again, um, oh, excuse me, I just quoted that verse, uh, next line, the things of the Spirit of God, and this certainly includes the truth of Jesus and his cross and death for us, are unknown and unknowable to the natural man and the mind of flesh. The gospel is, quote-unquote, 
foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 25. The gospel is foolishness to those who do not believe. How then could we invite unbelievers to make a decision for that which they think foolish? Nobody's going to choose the foolish thing. So again, all credit goes to God's word where he comes and in the first place takes away our ignorance. This is who, how can you choose something of which you're ignorant? It's like going to McDonald's and saying, hey, I'm going to have a, what's something that's not at McDonald's? Now that I think about it, they've got everything. Do they have spaghetti at McDonald's? I hope not. It's like going to McDonald's and saying, I'll have spaghetti. Can they give you spaghetti? No, they don't have it. How are you going to choose something that you don't even know is there, that isn't even available to you. How are you going to choose Jesus? Of course, you have to find out who Jesus is, what he's done for you. That's the word, that's the conversion taking place. It's the convincing and changing of your will. Yeah, you can't go to a restaurant and say, give me your, your mystery food. You're like, what do you mean mystery food? You can't choose something you're ignorant of. Okay, so in the first place, the ignorance has to be replaced by the word, and then that same word that comes convinces and changes our hearts. All right, and then that which once appeared foolish to us now appears wise. And also, that which once appeared wise to us now appears foolish. Okay, let's go a little further. More scripture. Again, Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. Now, does that mean that there's fallen human beings, that they're in a state of neutrality? They're wandering around out there in the world completely neutral, completely objective, just waiting for evidence to be presented so that they can be convinced of the truth. No. No, there is no neutrality. And neutrality is the presupposition of free choice. If you're not neutral, you're not free. You're biased. If you're not neutral, you're biased. If you're biased, you're not free. Okay, so the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit, and we should say for those listening along, this is capital S spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. So what's in view here is... The Holy Spirit has a certain set of desires. The natural fallen man, his desires are contrary to those. And the, these two things are in antithesis. The capital S Spirit and, it, and his desires over and against the desires of the flesh. Okay, Wolfmuller continues with the quote from Galatians 5.17. So this is St. Paul. Um, these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And that last clause um, probably sort of shifts into the Christian mindset, describing why it is that this natural man within us still wars with the Holy Spirit. Even though we believe in Christ, we've received the Holy Spirit in baptism, we experience this extreme struggle in our flesh. Does your flesh make it easy on you to get up and go to church every Sunday? Does your flesh make it easy on you to pray? Does your flesh make it easy on you to, to say you're sorry? Or to fix something you've messed up? No! Flesh fights us all day, every day, every way it can. It's even more intense in Christians. So, the, uh, the desires of the flesh are contrary to those of the Spirit. So, how are you going to take somebody who is contrary, by definition of Scripture, contrary to the Holy Spirit, and say, hey, can, hey, why don't you make a decision for Jesus? They're immediately going to be opposed. Okay, a little further along with Wolf Mueller then. Far from accepting the good news of Jesus, our sinful flesh fights against it. Stephen, the first martyr after Jesus' ascension, preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. 
as your fathers did, so do you. Such accusation stands over the entire unbelieving world. Now, quoting from Ephesians 4.18, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Wolfmuller's next line, far from having a free will to choose or make a decision for Jesus, the scriptures speak of the natural condition of man as an enemy of God. Okay, And here Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Wolfmuller's commentary on verse uh, on this verse from Romans 8. The fleshly mind does not and cannot submit to God's law. Such sure testimonies answer the question, can we make a decision for Christ? I mean, how are you going to make a decision for Christ when you can't even make a decision to be a good person? How are you going to make a decision for Christ when you can't even make a decision to keep God's commandments? Making a decision for Christ is, in fact, the first and greatest commandment, thou shalt have no other gods. How are you going to keep that one if you can't keep the others? You see the problem. Yes, please. Are we running a microphone today? We do have a hand up here in the front. So these uh, biblical statements mm -hmm. uh, uh, describing the flesh, mm -hmm. it applies to uh, to the Christians too. It's yes. not because a, a lot of times we believe that, oh, this is not for me mm -hmm. because this is for the uh, unbelievers. Mm -hmm. But I believe that this is for us, our daily battle mm -hmm. that we have to be aware of. That's a good point. You know, whatever the scriptures say about unbelievers are true about the sinful nature that still remains in us. Um, this, is, this is why we're not, you know, death is transformed by Christ into this, into this beautiful circumcision made without hands. What gets cut off, what gets cut out of me as I pass through death? The sinful nature, the flesh. It's cut off from me. And, I mean, how we long for that day. That's, that's part of the joy and beauty of entering into heaven, entering into paradise with our Lord, is to finally be free from my own worst enemy, which is me. Yeah. And there is nothing redeemable about the flesh that is within me. There's no conversion or change. It goes on hating God. It goes on opposing God right up until I die. Which is why when the Christian confesses his sins and the, and the world says, ha ha, you're a hypocrite. You pretend to be a Christian, but you do all these things. There's no hypocrisy. That's why the Christian every Sunday, for example, in divine service makes a confession. That is the will governed by the Holy Spirit over and against the will governed by the flesh. And the will of the Holy Spirit and the will of the new man within us is saying, I side with God against myself, against my flesh. Okay? And Paul's point in Romans 7 is that if you side with God, if you side with his law over and against your flesh, then it's not even you who sins any longer. It's you who's saying, I recognize this is sin. I want to be rid of it. In what sense then is it you who's doing the sinning? This is Paul's really, really profound point in Romans 7. Okay? Rather, it's the you proper that's dragging the flesh, kicking and screaming, to confession and saying, God, this is what my flesh has done. I oppose it. I ask for your mercy upon me and your forgiveness. I ask that you would help me put this sinful flesh to death until that day in which you do definitively put the flesh to death. Okay. Yes, please. Yes. Um, it, it, I agree with this 100%. You know, you know I do. It's one of my favorite subjects. Um, but... There are sticking points that when we're talking to unbelievers, for example, uh, creationism, 
uh, versus evolution mm-hmm. uh, or or this decision process. Do you think it's sometimes better to just kind of uh, gloss over these issues? In other words, not get stuck on them, mm-hmm. saying, I know it feels like you're making a decision for Christ, but oh. you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're not really. And you get stuck on that issue. And so, it, you know, uh, and you're arguing about something that, although it's important, it's not as important that the person has accepted Christ. Right. Yeah, I think your point's well taken. So um, when you're talking to someone who's outside of the Christian faith, it's not very beneficial to bring up these points yeah. other than other than maybe to say you're way worse off than you think and you're deluded. And that's what the Bible says yeah. and that you're so deluded you can't even know what's wrong with you. Um, but that has limited mileage, doesn't it? Yeah. Because they're already operating according to human reason, which can't see or perceive these things. But we do engage in the task of both law and gospel, um, that is that is showing people their sinful condition, showing an unbeliever his sinful condition, and then and then saying, look, there's rescue for this condition in Christ only. You know, that's that's kind of the presentation in a nutshell. And then, of course, when you're dealing with Christians, and maybe Christians who have been misguided into thinking this I've got a free, the Bible teaches me I have a free will in spiritual things and things above me. The Bible teaches me that I'm saved by making a decision for Jesus. Yeah, as I mentioned last week, you know, when you run across this, it's not like you need to immediately go on the attack and, you know, try to root out this false way of thinking, this false way of speaking. In fact, it's, you know, it's most beneficial to just slowly, painstakingly kind of teach and expose to exactly what we're doing right here and just look at all these scriptures and look at how they don't make any sense if you're going to assert that a natural man has free will and can choose Christ and an unbeliever can choose Christ. It doesn't make any sense. How, how do you line that up? An unbeliever can choose Christ. The flesh can choose the things of the spirit. Paul just says the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? So this may be for Christians here in America who have been indoctrinated under this false system. It's just kind of like this waking up to a different way of thinking, a different way of speaking, and that different way of thinking and speaking is the Bible's way. But in this sense, too, like zoom all the way out. This is the whole project of theology. This is even what we're doing right here. I mean, we're not, we're not all here to pat ourselves on the back for getting everything right. We're here to reform ourselves and our own thinking continually each and every time and to, to grow bit by bit, piece by piece. Sometimes you feel a landslide and you go, okay, I really, the mental furniture got rearranged there. I now see things totally differently than, than I once did. But yeah, that's the ongoing process of Christ teaching us throughout. So we don't need to make a stigma about this either, you know, as we engage other Christian people who might say, hey, I, I'm pretty sure it feels like I made a decision for Jesus, you know. Again, my, my way of kind of poking at that is like, well, which Jesus did you decide? Well, the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus of the Bible. Really, how'd you come across him? Somebody tell you? Did you read it in the Bible? Oh, somebody told you. Okay, so it was the word that enlightened you as to who this Jesus was, right? When you made a decision for him, on what basis did you make your decision? Did you know him to be good? Did you know him to be merciful? Did you know him to be crucified and risen? Where did you get all that data? Did you not get it from the word? Then it was the word that changed your heart. Yeah, so this is the way you can kind of bring people along. Uh, Yes, please, one second. I just finally learned how important the word is because after years and years of just floating around under various faiths and various leaders, mm-hmm. you know, at that time it wasn't important what I believed, well, what I believed, but not how I got it. Mm-hmm. So if I accepted Christ and it was my decision, okay, I moved along, but it wasn't until you go deeper and deeper mm-hmm. and deeper and deeper and more and more sanctified, and then it, you finally realize that, hey, there was none of it about you. Right. But it, but it right. really, it's the Word. It's the Word that does it. You can talk somebody hours, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it has to come in time and yes. understanding wisdom. Yes, that's very well said, very well said. So we can be patient with one another as we engage in all of this as well. Please. I... I 
love what you just said. And that brings us to how do we rightly think about the mystical union? If it's the Holy Spirit that dwells within us and does the work on helping us Mm. come to faith and come to wisdom and truly understand the truth, we can so easily fall on the other side. And I loved Vicar's sermon on Sunday about the mystical union because you went there and it's so dangerous to talk about because that's when we immediately start thinking, I can say things and my words have power. I mean, how should we rightly think about this? Ah, it's a really good question. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, maybe, maybe kind of, kind of one of the subtexts that, that, that lie with both of the last two comments slash questions. The more you learn about what the scriptures actually say, it doesn't make theology easier. In fact, it makes it much harder, much more, because you realize you're, you have a lot less control than you thought you did. You have your mind wrapped around a lot less than you once thought you did. Now, either way, it's objectively the case. What's changed is just your psychology. You're now seeing things more accurate and accurately, and you're seeing that we have a lot less control than we previously thought. That's a scary thing. It's an unnerving thing. It's also, as with all the articles of the faith, there's a skill and an art to thinking and speaking rightly, and it's not a piece of cake. It's really not a piece of cake. Um, the vicar and I were joking earlier this year, it would be very easy for any professor at the seminary to lead any one of us in this room into confessing a Trinitarian or Christological heresy, even though we wouldn't want to. Because these things are so difficult. I mean, when the scripture says, on one hand, they're so simple. He's true God and he's true man in one person. So simple. But it would take probably about five to ten minutes to be led into confessing against one or the other or confounding your reason. What, what, is, what is going on here in the scriptures? Well, in the first place, God is by definition incomprehensible. And that doesn't mean that we can't understand him. It means we cannot comprehend him. We cannot wrap ourselves around the mind of God. As soon as you wrapped yourself around the mind of God, guess who God is? You. <laughs> yeah, you're bigger than he is. So we cannot wrap our, our minds around God. In fact, then what we actually see is that our minds are quite humble. And while we can learn to think properly and speak properly about these doctrines God gives us, we realize that it's a at a certain point we have to call them mysteries. That's why Paul talks about the pastoral office as being stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay? There is a proper right confession. There is truth that can be known and confessed. But how it all works has profoundly mysterious elements. Now, what's, what, where do you get to sort of the, the crux, the cross of the mystery in every article of the faith? It's that point at which human reason recoils. And human reason says, guess what? That's foolish. That's foolish. How could Christ know all things because he's the divine son of God and yet learn things and grow in wisdom, as the scriptures say, because he's a true man? Wait, he both knows all things and grows in wisdom? And what, and what does reason do? Scoffs. Scoffs. It's foolish. It's foolish to reason. What's the whole point? That God uses foolish things to shame the wise. And in fact, this foolishness is the wisdom of God by which he excludes the wise and accepts only the humble and foolish who will set aside their own reason and say, what God says must be true. God is God. I am not. I am his subject. I will hear what he says, whether I understand it or not. I will trust that he understands it, and I will learn to think rightly and speak rightly. Right? And that's really the task of humbling yourself in theology. Okay? And if you really want the biblical discourse, like, well, where did Rhodey get all this? Did this just come out of his own brain? No. First uh, Corinthians, just read through the first chapter. First couple chapters especially are very helpful. It's all of this Christian epistemology. What's wise? What's foolish? How do these things work? It's great stuff. 
Okay, and then that takes us to the question that was posed of the mystical union, that is, the indwelling, not merely of the Holy Spirit, but of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God within us. This too is a mystery. To me, it's analogous to the mystery of marriage. Remember how the scriptures say that two will become one flesh. Well, I walked, I, I, I walked into the church on the day of my wedding. I stood up front. My, my soon-to-be wife, she walked up the aisle. I, I saw her. I saw me. I saw two. We went through the wedding ceremony. We went through the, the rite of holy matrimony. And as we, as we walked down the aisle, hand in hand, I saw her, I saw me. How many did I see? Two. I saw two. That's what my reason and senses told me. But what did God say happened? And this is your point. God said the two have become one flesh. It's a mystery. You see, my reason recoils. My mystery says, my reason says, it's no mystery. There's two people there. But God says, no, out of two, I've made one. You see? Okay, so the same thing is analogous by way of the mystical union that, that the Holy Scriptures say that because God has baptized me, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, indwells me bodily. Why does my reason recoil? Because I don't really experience that. <laughs> I mean, I might experience in part... I might, I might have fleeting glimpses of like, that wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit. I used to not think that way. Now I do. That must be the indwelling of God. I love God's word. I, I understand things about God and his word that I didn't previously. All of this is kind of evidence for the indwelling of God. And yet in my experience, like, do I sense the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling within me bodily? No. So it's a mystery. In the same way that I see two and God says there's one flesh, I see God and I see me and he says, I dwell within you, my reason recoils. I have to receive it by faith. I have to, I have to think about how, how to properly think about it and then how to properly articulate that. Well, where do I learn that? From the scriptures. Okay, then this sort of like existential, like every day living my life as one indwelt by God. Um, epistemological question, how do I know what I know? How do I know if this originates in God or in me and the new man or the old man? Um, and, and then how do I steer clear of this? Well, if God dwells in me, then everything I say must be God's words. Or you kind of see this like God put it upon my heart. And then it turns out to just be like what that person wanted to do anyway. <laughs> it's like, how do you distinguish between God putting it on your heart and you just wanting to do it? In fact, isn't it kind of the truth that you wanted to do it, but you were worried you'd be rejected? So you said, God put this on my heart so that then it couldn't be rejected. Or if it didn't turn out well, you could do what? Well, that was God. <laughs> that was God who put it on my heart. I mean, it's the perfect cop-out. It's the perfect little psychological safety net and caveat. It's, it's a terrible abuse. Okay, so God indwells us. How do, how do we know what's what? And this is, this is um, really by extension where St. John says, test the spirits. Okay. And now this is a really broad application. This actually means test other human beings. Okay, um, And how are you going to test them? By what you've learned from the scriptures. In the same way, how are you going to test your own spirit? By what you learn from the scriptures. If what's going on in your heart and in your mind via the indwelling of God is in tune with the scriptures, you can be certain it's of God. If it's not, if it's contrary to, you can be certain it's not of God. God's not going to contradict himself. God's not going to deceive. God's not going to lie. So if what God who is indwelling you is telling you to do is contrary to what God in his written word, you know, one of these is not like the others, Go with the word and realize the other's an imposter. And that indeed is, um, is precisely how Satan likes to do his most devious work, doesn't he? Satan doesn't show up with, you know, snakes in it coming out of his, out of his head like hair and vampire teeth and maybe red horns and a pitchfork and announcing that you should do bad stuff. That's not what Satan does. What does Satan do? 
masquerades as an angel of light. Uh, the unholy spirit tries to make himself the holy spirit. The unholy messenger tries to make himself the holy messenger. Um, he tries to make himself a false messiah, false, a false spirit, a false. But he does this by masquerading in light. All right. So then, how do you dis, how do you discern the deceiver? And that's where you have to have this objective written word of God, by which you're always testing yourself and testing those around you. Great question. Hopefully that was a somewhat helpful answer that kind of ties together these deeper themes that we're, um, we're talking about. Yeah. Okay, let's just do a little bit more in Scripture, really really punching home this point. Um, again, if, you, if this is a little too like pop theology for you, you want a really serious treatment of this, you, you want an, a fairly exhaustive list. These Scriptures, even though they're completely convincing in and of themselves, like maybe you just want more of them. Uh, formula of Concord. In the Book of Concord, um, the Lutheran confessions that really articulate who we are, Those, that Book of Concord has a document in it, the Formula of Concord, and Article 2 is on free will. And you will get I mean, I think in one section in the Reader's Edition, there's like three straight pages of Bible verses quoted. This is not a minor theme in the scriptures. This is not a minor quibble. This is foundational kind of theology. Why? Because if you leave the human being free to make a decision for Jesus, then that, that thing which is the will, that doesn't need to be redeemed, does it? It's already functioning just fine. It's already capable of choosing Jesus. It's already good. Now you're going to say Jesus died for everything except for your will, which is good. And really, what is the essence of who you are if not your will? I mean, you've got your intellect, you've got your memory. But really, making all decisions on the basis of those things is your will. Your will is the essence of who you are. So you're saying the essence of who I am doesn't actually need Jesus. In fact, I can choose Jesus. That's a big problem, isn't it? Not, not only are you really embellishing what you can do in a, in a proud and boastful way before God, but whatever you attribute to yourself, you're taking away from Christ. Because Christ did not die for all of you. In fact, he didn't even die for the most essential part of you, your will. He just died for these peripheral things. This is where it's no mistake in theologies that are based on this foundation. You can make a free will decision for Jesus. Jesus recedes, and particularly Jesus' death on the cross recedes. That's why churches that hold this, you've got to make a decision for Jesus. You find that that's like once you've made your decision for Jesus, Jesus has left the building. He's no longer important, or he's just sort of there as a guy to praise or thank, or he's a, he's a necessary asterisk but just an asterisk in the theological system that is just me and God. Okay. Well, whenever Jesus has departed in our theology and it's just me and God, we know we've got a big problem. One of Jesus' disciples, Philip, said to him, Show us the Father. Out of the way, Jesus. You've done your work. Show us the Father. And what, is, what does Jesus say? Yeah, he says, have you been with me so long and still you do not know me? I and the Father are one. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in, if you're in a theological system, if you're in a church where Jesus is like, well, it was really important that he died on the cross so that I could get down to the real business of theology. Thank you, Jesus. Just me and God. You've actually lost God. What you have is an illusion of God. And you've got, you've got a theology that is no longer, technically speaking, Christian. Because Christian theology, technically, properly speaking, is to see Christ, who is the revelation of the Father, who is the express image of the invisible God. Show us the Father and it'll be enough. Out of the way, let us see the Father. No, you don't understand. If you see me, you see the Father. 
You see Christ's theology? You see the way this works? That if we're not looking at Christ, we're not looking at the Father. And so that's really what's at stake here. It's why we're spending so much time, because where you have this foundation built of this free will decision for Jesus, what you find is that church ceases to be about Christ and becomes all about the Christian. Jesus is out of the picture. It's just me and God. And that, unfortunately, is much of American Christianity and what we are fighting against because it's not biblical Christianity. All right. Yes, please, please. Um, if you talk to somebody who goes to such a church, they're going to say, no, I have a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the most important thing to me. Mm -hmm. And I am a Christian. And they won't see that Jesus left the building. I can see what you're saying, because I believe that. But how do you respond to that? They have a hard time seeing it. Yeah, I, I mean, again... Our goal as Christians is we want to further people in the faith. We want to be humble servants of the word. We don't want to engage people to win an argument. You know, so we want to be really careful with that. We want to pick and choose our battles. If, if a Christian is, you know, if they're, if they're stubbornly holding on to these things and it, and it seems as if like getting them to let go of these things is going to be to, cause shipwreck to their faith you might you know you might hold back and you kind of want to keep that in mind the goal is to get people into heaven and to further them in their theological understanding not to not to somehow get twisted in this meta game by satan into shipwrecking people's faith wrong though it may be but i think that there are little ways that you can you can kind of playfully poke holes in this sort of like this illusion that people are under in american christianity of oh no i've got jesus i've got jesus everywhere I've got a relationship with God, when in fact they really don't. You know, one of the places to, I think, that we can, we can really do some helpful work is um, to draw attention to our Lord's words in the Lord's Supper. Because in these churches where Jesus often recedes, he's a necessary asterisk, he's kind of like this name get, that gets tossed around, but it's not Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins. What tends to happen in these churches is the Lord's Supper is only symbolic, it's just bread and wine, and we do it once a month. Okay. If we can find a friendly, helpful way to lead them to Jesus' words, where Jesus says, this cup is the New Testament. Yeah, the New Testament in my blood. So, so look at this, look at this. What is the Old Testament? Nowhere does the Bible refer to those books at the beginning of your Bible as the Old Testament. What is the Old Testament? What the Bible refers to as the Old Testament is Moses standing at Sinai sprinkling the people with blood. Without an Old Testament, there isn't a New Testament. Without a New Testament, there isn't an Old Testament. It's just the Testament, right? So when Jesus says, this is the New Testament, what's his, what's his, contra what's his contrast? What's his comparison? It's this old covenant where Moses is sprinkling the people with the blood. That is the covenant. That is the heart of the Old Testament faith. What is the heart of the New Testament faith? The new covenant. Well, what's the new covenant? This cup. That's what Jesus says. If this cup is the New Testament, the new covenant, then it ought to be absolutely central. Why isn't it central in your church? You see, you see where I'm going with this? Why isn't it the heart and center of what you do? Why isn't it the heart and center of divine service? Why isn't it the heart and center of your piety? Receiving Christ himself in his body and blood, shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins. Straight words of Jesus from the Gospels. Um, that might be a way of... And many people who come here to faith from non-Lutheran, that's, that's often kind of a... A light bulb that gets put on, a, a switch that gets flipped, is, wait a minute, my church isn't, doesn't have that view. Well, how can you not have that view when Jesus literally tells you this is the New Testament? So it puts Christ at the center, it puts the sacrament at the center. That's when you at least now, now I'm going to perceive God and his attitude toward me through this lens. Okay, please. I tend to so agree with that because I found you don't get anywhere by trying to argue about this, and communion is one of the really 
argumentative places. Mm -hmm. And I've approached it from the fact that I think you're, you're missing so much. There's so much more. And then to take them to what the New Testament really is. Right. And it kind of gives them some things to think about. It may take a while, but it's going in a different direction that they're missing something. They've got a lot, but hey, there's so many more blessings there. Mm -hmm. And you can, even, you can even sidestep or ignore the question of, is it Christ's true body and blood? Because as you mentioned, that's a controversy. Let's just ignore that. What about the New Covenant, the New Testament in His cup? If, if that's so central for Christ, why, is it, why does it look the way it does in this church? Why is it once a month? Why is it just oyster crackers and grape juice? Why is it that everybody just goes up there and takes it whenever they feel like it? Why, why is it done this way? And you might even follow up. Was it ever done this way in the history of the church? And the answer is for 1,500 straight years, no. Only about the time of the Radical Reformation, where the, reform, the Radical Reformers were the first ones really positing that it isn't his body and blood, um, that's, where you, that's where you start to see this breakdown to where now in the church, who are the, the sort of the theological grandchildren of those Radical Reformers, now the Lord's Supper is like, eh, we do it, we do it when we feel like it. Eh, it's just all in remembrance. It's just all up here. What is it? It's a symbolic kind of meal. Where does the Bible say it's a symbolic kind of meal? The, from Jesus' own lips, this is the new covenant. This is the center. This is the everything. Yeah, what he's giving to us there in the Lord's Supper is, of course, the very thing he sacrificed once for all on the cross. He gave his body and blood for us there, and now he distributes that same body and blood for us, that same forgiveness of sins to us. He makes us participants in receivers of his sacrifice. That's the New Testament. Okay, did I see a... Please, sir. Yes, let me know if, if, what you think about this method, Pastor, but I've often thought about responding to people who are so... They, they hold to this decision that they've made for Jesus, and they, they know it, that's, you know... I've often thought, well, you, you know, doesn't that in some sense make you responsible for your own salvation then? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not Christ alone, and, they, and if they come back and say, well, no, Jesus is my Savior, but then you can say, well, well no... Like, you're not saved until you make a decision, right? Yeah, so in exactly. some sense, you are. Whether it's 50% you and 50% Jesus or 99% Jesus and you 1% you, you are responsible right. in some sense for your own salvation. Right. And then you do have cause to boast. Whether it's 1% or 50% or whatever it is, you do have cause to boast. And this, then you get this really bad theology. You get this really bad theology. Why are you in heaven but Jones isn't? Because I made a decision for Jesus, Jones certainly didn't. Get what you deserve, Jones. Should have exercised your free will as I did. I, yeah, it's a big deal, because ultimately, why are you saved? In this equation, what Christ does for you and what Christ does for Jones are exactly the same. So what's the salvific difference? What's the cause of salvation? Not Jesus. Me. My will. That's where this theology is really exposed for what it is. Super ugly, super proud. I'm going to stand before God and say, Christ, you, you sort of opened the door for all of us. That, does that save me? No. I walked through. I made a decision. Does that save me? Yes. Who saved me? Me. I mean, thanks for rolling out the red carpet, Christ. But I'm the one who walked up it. I'm the one who walked through. It's really an ugly theology when you get down to brass tacks. And, and we've been pretty charitable here uh, so far. But yeah, if, I mean, you can really look at this free will decision theology um, in a, I mean, it's true naked form. Once you sort of removed all the pious facade from it, it's nasty. It's na I'm in heaven because I made a choice. What about Christ? He did the same thing for me he did for the person in hell big deal. I mean, it was the it was sort of the necessary asterisk. He had to roll out the red carpet. He had to open the door. But why am I inside the building? Me. Ooh. I mean, that's the kind of ugliness that you see the man standing in the temple. Thank you that I'm not like Jones. Thank you that I'm not like this other man who didn't make a decision for you. And what does Christ say about that man? He went home not justified. Where the other man says, 
Lord, have mercy on me. And that's the English. In fact, he says technically in the, in the Greek, it's evident, Lord, make sacrifice, make atonement for me. That man goes home justified. So how do we stand before God? Not, I made a decision, but Lord, have mercy. I receive what you give. Yeah. Please. I'm getting more. Think of, think of the age I am, and I've heard the gospel all the time in my life. Eighty years, and there's still a struggle in me that is, I'm going to say, in part, um, due to, I'm blaming it on America's founding fathers. <laughs> we have a culture in America it, the school is ridden with this former educator. You're constantly saying to the children in the classroom, or the little ones who are two years old, you know, you know what's right, let's do it. There is a, the, there's an admonition constantly in our children's lives to do right. And then here we come with God's, uh, story of um it isn't you <laughs> do you do you see where i am i am i have a uh, uh it's a it's truly a mystery mm. that's mm. that's the best i can say and so okay so it's his story it isn't mm -hmm. my story mm -hmm. and i'm having difficulty conceding mm -hmm. to his story because being a German Lutheran, I am, I'm supposed to be doing something, you know. No, no, no. Then I come to this class. I see. I see. And I have, um, it's all his doing. Right, right. So I think, I think, you know, in the, in the absolute ideal set of circumstances, we're going to have education be founded upon what we would call Christian education, but just education about God as the foundation of all education, foundation about, you know, um, we want our, we want our children to know about the creator and we want our, our children to know about the creation. And that's the process of educating. We've, we've attached all these labels to it, right? But that's really what it is. And I think what you're lamenting is when you take God out, then you're just, you're not, you, you can't talk about the creator, just the creation. And then who's the only doer? You. And then that leads people to many, many misunderstandings. And it's so ingrained in them because they've been educated in this framework from the littlest on up. Yeah. So thank you for those comments. Very interesting. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Please. Yeah. Uh, with us thinking about um, we are the ones that has to have to make the decision for Christ. But where did that come from? From the leaders, from the pastors mm -hmm. that is teaching us that that is the way mm -hmm. to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yes. And also they put that on our shoulder saying, oh, you're going to when you're going to stand in front of God, God is going to ask you, what do you do with the Jones? You didn't mm -hmm. ask them to receive Jesus mm. in their heart. Mm. So then where are they? They are not in heaven. So that is even worse, putting the, 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 the responsibility on you as a Christian right. that you didn't reach out to the Jones. Uh, yes, I know. I know. All of this is terrible theology. I don't even know where to start. I sometimes get too depressed with American Christianity. Um, yeah, you've got, um, you're, you're guilted. You're guilted for not sharing the gospel enough, or not saying the right things, or not doing the right things. If someone stubbornly rejects and refuses God, um, you're somehow guilted for that. Interestingly, neither the disciples nor Jesus himself ever express any guilt about people rejecting the gospel. That's on them. As, you know, it's this kind of axiom. If you're in, if you're in heaven, who got you there? God. You're not going to say me. Okay? If you're in hell, who got you there? Me, you know, you, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Why am I, why am I in hell? Because I stubbornly rejected God and refused Him. Why am I in heaven? Because God graciously chose me and converted my will. Does reason recoil at that? Yeah, the same way it recoils at the idea that Jesus both knows everything and learned. Go away, reason. God's speaking. 
Right? It's adult time. We're going to listen to God, and then we're going to just let you serve God's word, right? This I so this idea, you know, that that we're somehow to blame uh, for people going for people, you know, not believing. We didn't. It's just not in the scriptures. And then what else is not in the scriptures? I mean, newsflash to anyone who's read the Bible, the disciples are not going around telling people to make a decision for Jesus. Newsflash to anyone who's read the scriptures, the sinner's prayer isn't in there. Nor are we taught to pray any prayer of conversion, nor is this a repeated recurrent thing in the church. It's just not there. So all of this stuff that we just assume, like American Christianity, American evangelicalism, like has the high ground, and this is somehow like Bible believing. It's like, open your Bible and see if you can find anything they're talking about. You won't. So while they're pecking on us for, oh, you you pay too much attention to the Lord's Supper. Well, Jesus says it's the New Testament. It's a pretty big deal. Um, well, we've got we've got the sinner's prayer. Well, where's the sinner's prayer? Nowhere. We've got baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Would you like to see any number of chapter and verses about that? Well, we've got baptism as symbolic and baby dedications. Well, where are either of those? Where's one single verse in all the scriptures that talks about baptism as symbolic? Where's one single verse in all the scriptures that talks about baby dedication? Where's, where's one verse in all the scriptures that talks about faith as free will? One verse in all the scriptures that talks about making a decision for Jesus? One verse in all the scriptures that talks about... Communion being simply a symbol and just bread and wine. You won't find any of this. And yet we're all here in America expected to believe that this is Christianity. Now, next to the scriptures, what's the most helpful thing for fetching all this out? A knowledge of history. To realize that these this laundry list that I've recited for you and probably many other things, they don't show up into the church until very, very recently. All this decision for Jesus stuff is about 200 years old max. All this, the Holy Spirit put it on my heart to tell you, is really pop in its popular form, a couple hundred years old. It traces back to the Radical Reformation. All, all of this business about this, the sacraments being symbolic and not doing anything and the real stuff ta- taking place internally between you and God, all this stuff about Jesus out of the way and just me and God and all of this stuff is at the absolute oldest 500 years old. Go dig around in the church fathers. Nobody talks that way. Everybody talks the way we talk as Lutherans. That's what you find. So whether you're doing, whether you're doing strict biblical theology or whether you're doing just kind of historical theology, seeing what's out there, either way you'll come to the same conclusion. And so we can be confident in that. Even though we're in a minority here in this country, we can be very confident in those two principles and, and go forth with, with kind of a joyful evangelical confidence as we share these things with others. Yeah, well, please. two things. Uh, in all my life as being a Lutheran, I don't remember decisional theology coming up in the mainstream in America until the 70s, mid-70s. Mm. So it might have been out there 200 years ago, but mainstream. And now it's like we're having to defend ourselves against this heresy, actually. It's almost demonic. I mean, like you say, where would he rather work? The mm-hmm. church or outside the church? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He'd rather work in the church. Absolutely. Yeah, outside the church right now, he's got him. I mean, even being a Lutheran is scary. Yeah. You know? It is. Not being a Lutheran, of course. (laughs) Right. Lutherians, I know you guys. I bet you don't. (laughs) Because we're not Lutherians. Yeah. Okay, well, I see that we're... um, Was there a a hand? Okay, why don't you you quick? Because we're in our last couple minutes. We'll just just call it I was going to say that a lot of this, you know, is hiding in plain sight. And you touched on how things can you change your mental furniture when you see things in a different way mm-hmm. that story about the 10 lepers and the one that comes back i had always perceived that you know god wants our thanks right but in fact he wasn't finished giving them his gifts he had much more to give he wanted to give them more and if they'd all come back he would have given them even more than just cleaning so it's kind of hiding in plain sight but we perceive that we have to give something to god when in fact he wants to give everything to us yeah exactly i i for many years of my ministry absolutely loathed because where does that text show up in the lectionary for us as lutherans anyway but 
Thanksgiving Day. That's the text. Could you more botch it? So the whole, it's like how many sermons are out there? Um, oh gosh, there's even a hymn. Forgive us, Lord, for shallow thankfulness. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, well. I don't know. Much, much could be said, but these are ex- these are various exercises in missing the point. Um, so a part of it's a translational issue because what comes across in the English translation is your faith has healed you, but the word there is sozo. Your faith has saved you. So why does Jesus want the nine to return to give thanks? Because he wants them to see in that mi- in that minor physical healing a picture of what he's capable of healing. If he can heal the body of leprosy, he can heal the soul from sin. He, by his, the power of his words, he can not only cleanse them of their leprosy, he can cleanse them of their sins, give them eternal life. Their faith thus saves them. Their receipt of his word saves them. That's what he wants. I love how you put it. He wants more for them. So now, now this is why I actually love it for Thanksgiving. And maybe this was the wisdom. Um, that you can do this great... I bet you thought this was about how you're bad for not giving thanks. <laughs> That's not what this text is about. This text is about how much Jesus has in store for you, not only the resurrection of your body, but the complete healing of your person, body and soul. Well, let's end on that note. We'll see you next week. The Lord be with you. Awesome.